This Week in Wealth is powered by Alpha Wealth Group. If you're serious about retirement and have saved $250,000 or more, call Alpha Wealth Group's Tom Fortino now, 630-934-1855 or alphawealthgroup.com. Alpha Wealth Group, retirement made simple. Hey, good morning, Chicago. Welcome back to This Week in Wealth. I'm Elise Glink. I am the CEO of Best Money Moves, my financial wellness company. And I'm Tom Fortino. I'm the principal and founder of the Alpha Wealth Group right here in the Chicago land area. We're a wealth management firm. We provide estate, tax, income, and investment, and what I like to say, complete retirement planning. <laughs> As opposed to incomplete retirement That's true. planning. Very important distinction. Yeah, it, it is. And if you want to find out exactly what he means by that, you can give Tom a call, 630-934-1855, or you can go to alphawealthgroup.com, take a look at all the content he has on that website. And if you want to ask us a question, and more and more of you are doing that every week, I'm delighted to say, uh, 630-934-1855 is the number. So, Tom, this week I had an email exchange with one of our listeners. Uh, she's mm-hmm. a senior. She's living on a very limited income, and she actually had to move out of her home of 40 years, which she was renting, because her landlord raised her rent $400 a month or about $5,000 a year. So looking at the numbers this week, there were some new studies that came out that is showing that she's literally not alone. Like, it's it's terrifying, and you feel alone, but more than half of Americans who rent had a rent increase last year, 53%. Mm-hmm. Eight million Americans, about 13% of people, are actually behind in their rental payments. And in New York, Nevada, and Louisiana, I'm glad Illinois is not on this list, nearly 20% of renters are behind in a rental payment. So she asked if we could please talk about people who are living on a fixed income with maybe limited opportunities to make additional money. And one of the things that she brought up is the amount you're able to make before taxes get deducted from Social Security. And so I thought maybe we would start there because I think a lot of people are confused about those rules. She said that they the amount hadn't been increased in years, even despite inflation. And I actually mm-hmm. didn't know if that was true or not, but thought you might. Well, we have to be clear because there's a lot of moving parts when we talk about Social Security, right? So there's the obviously the benefit that you receive in the whole claiming strategy of when you take it. That's one piece. The other piece of it is how much of it is taxable. For those of you that are receiving Social Security, I know this is one of the areas that are looked overlooked, but if you look on your 1040, I'm sorry, we're in tax season, you've completed it, <laughs> line 6A and line 6B. 6A is the amount of Social Security you receive. 6B is the amount that is taxable to you. So we have to understand Social Security is not received tax-free. Now, we can talk a little about this whole provisional income piece, but I just want people to be aware because, you know, you could say my Social Security benefit is 30000 but if I have to turn around and give 7000 back to the government, well, it's not 30000 It's what you net, which is twenty three. Okay, 1000 in this example. You know, again, this is something I do, again, getting back to why we talk about being complete. We want to be aware of how much we have to give back in taxes on our Social Security. So up to 85%. So it is not 100%, at least as in today. Up mm-hmm. to 85% of your benefit can be taxable to you. So in the example I gave of 30000 up to 25000 of that benefit, 85%, could be taxable at whatever tax bracket you are in. So we again, we want to be aware of that. Let's be aware of what's going on, and I think there's maybe an opportunity. So... There's ways to try to get as much Social Security as tax-free as possible. 
again, there's ways to look at that. Roths, that's what you hear me talk about Roths a lot. Roths are not used in that Social Security calculation. In the extreme, if all of your money was in a Roth IRA or Roth 401k versus a traditional, you would get all of your Social Security tax-free. So that's just maybe an extreme, but hey, it's a goal to try to get to. Okay, wait, I just want to stop you there because that's Mm -hmm. actually uh, sort of interesting. And despite Mm -hmm. the fact that we have talked about this a lot, we Mm -hmm. actually haven't talked about it, I think, in that context where... You know, by creating value inside the Roth IRA as to a 401k or a regular IRA, mm-hmm. you are able to, um, because it grows tax-free forever, this is an actual practical example of what you mean by that. Right. When I say tax-free, I mean there's no capital gains tax, there's no income tax, and oh yeah, there's no Social Security. It is not used in the calculation to determine how much of your Social Security is taxable either. So That's, that is pretty significant. And what about a Roth 401k? Same treatment, right? Okay. Any type of Roth, deemed Roth. And that's even when you get with HSAs. Things that aren't used in this calculation. Now, to the listener's point, we have to, again, differentiate between these numbers. It's called provisional income, and she is correct if she's talking about that number. In 1983, they came out and said, look, we got to do something about Social Security. So prior to 1983, all Social Security was tax-free. And they said, well, we, can, we need to tax up to 50% of it, right? And then they said, well, mm. 1993, we need to make some more adjustments. We need to tax up, tax up to 85% of it. And so there's there's numbers if you're provisional income, which I don't think we can get to on the show. But No, no, no. We don't want to get too deep in the weeds right. where you can, you know. But those people. limits, if you're over certain amounts, mm-hmm. they have not increased since 1983 or 1993. So that is a true statement. Now, that's different than the income you can make without penalizing Social Security, but... All right, wait, wait. So let me ask you another follow-up question. So uh, let's say I get, I'm getting, uh, you know, $30,000 a year, and my husband is getting Mm $30,000 a year, so we're at $60,000, and we don't have any other income. Does the $60,000 get taxed? No. Okay. So Social Security alone doesn't get taxed. It gets taxed once you have outside income above $25,000? It's twenty five. Once you hit twenty five thousand of provisional income, okay, which again is a separate calculation. Half your Social Security plus your income. Once you get to that as an individual, it starts taxing. As a couple, it's it isn't until you get to. I shouldn't. It's not that it's a big number, but once you get to thirty two thousand above that, when your provisional income is above thirty two thousand, they start taxing Social Security. Seems a little unfair. Another marriage penalty. <laughs> All right. Well, we don't want to encourage anyone to have a gray divorce, which is or silver divorce, which is what they're (laughs) they're sort of calling that. Um, All right. So I I think that there's that really clears some of that stuff up, and you know we don't want to get too far into the weeds, folks. Mm So if you do want to go deeper into this with Tom, um, or you can ask us another question, and we've got a bunch more to talk about today, give us a call, 630-934-1855, 630-934-1855, or you can go to alphawealthgroup.com. You can also text us on that number, you know, whatever it is that you like to do. Um, all right, so we have, and I, I we just have a minute, so we'll, we'll just kind of tease this for our next segment, but... Uh, all I can say about the Fed and Silicon Valley was interesting week, right? Mm-hmm. With with um, Credit Suisse, and it came out that Credit Suisse might actually have, despite the fact they got caught doing this once, 
might have helped uh, American citizens avoid taxes. I'm just saying, uh, mm. you know, you, you think that they would learn once, and now that they've disappeared into the ether of the bank crisis, not so much. But I want to dig into this a little bit, because okay. it's a little bit scary, and we did get some questions around the whole um, Silicon Valley Bank and mm-hmm. the whole banking thing. So let's talk about that when we come back. Stay tuned. Okay. You're listening to This Week in Wealth on 720 WGN. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to This Week in Wealth. I'm Elise Glink here with Tom Fortino of Alpha Wealth Group. And you can find Tom, 630-934-1855. You can text us there. You can go to alphawealthgroup.com. So, Tom, uh, Mm -hmm. as we were saying just before we went to the break, uh, it was another really interesting week of revelations in the whole uh, banking crisis, right? We heard... From the Fed, I couldn't believe this, that mm-hmm. Silicon Valley Bank wound up having something like $48 billion in deposits withdrawn the day before it closed. And then overnight and the next day, account holders tried to withdraw another $100 billion in deposits. Like almost everything in the bank got liquidated. And I was trying to think, other than in the Great Depression, where people literally were standing in line... Mm-hmm. I, and I don't even think it could have happened that quickly because everything there was paper and pencil. It's got to be like the fastest drawdown in history in the banking crisis, don't you think? I mean, those numbers are pretty significant. I mean, in 2008, some of those things, we did see some lines and some of those things happen. This is, you know, we're talking obviously bigger, bigger numbers. And so that's significant. And that's, you know, this banking system, I, I'd like to always take something away from these these things that occur, which is, Maybe we become a little more aware. The individual says, you know, maybe I need to be a little more aware of what's going on with this banking thing and where my money is. And so the I don't want to say it's a positive spin, but to a certain extent it is because I think, again, this uncovers some things that maybe we just kind of never gave a lot of thought to. And hopefully, uh, you know, as, as this is an example, as there are other examples, we're not going to be blindsided in the future and we can maybe start taking action. It always feels to me like we come up with a solution to these things and then we just kind of get into the muck in a completely other way. But mm-hmm. I, So, for example, in this case, I think what surprised the Fed was since the last Great Recession 15 years ago, the rise of these fintechs that allow you to move vast sums of money, and I mean hundreds of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. instantly – overnight or not even overnight instantly they really didn't ever imagine that somebody who had 400 million in an account would literally just click a button two seconds that would be gone from one bank and put into another yeah this is interesting that you bring up police because we are if you think of someone under a certain age they may never may have never even seen the inside of a bank and so there's this (laughs) right right yeah and it's true and so you know, some out there, and I've heard some of these individuals say, look, you know, this is the way it's going. This is, we're going to a point where there could be some repositioning of certain things of how these banks work going forward. But the other thing, too, is it's it's just, I think there was a lot of oversight in what happened here. And as we, I think we talked about last week, we'll see. I don't think the story's over on what's going on with the banking but, system. No, you know. I think th- I think that's true. And a lot <clears throat> of your clients I know own small or mid-sized businesses or they're the CEOs of those or mm-hmm. senior leadership. And one of the things that the Wall Street Journal opined on this week um, in a, it was an opinion by Charles Col- um, Colomin, 
Kamir, I can't pronounce his last name, but Phil Graham was the other co-author of it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Kalamiris. Okay, I'm just going to give up. Anyway, um, it was talking about how the losses at Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, and other banks reflect uh, the risk of borrowing short and lending long. And they were saying this is really echoes of the 80s. I mean, you know, learning about you know, learning from history, I think we've all forgotten the 80s. God knows I did. But the um, it's kind of interesting that that's one take on it. You know, the idea that, you know, you have to go all the way back to the 80s to see how banks have kind of forgotten how to manage the risks of inflation mm-hmm. because we really haven't had it. And to your point from last week, this is the fastest that inflation, you know, that we've seen the Fed raise interest rates yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. Another never before. We talked about that at the end of the year. Last year was the year of never before, so this is another one. But I I think it's also worth um, just kind of bringing up that, you know, people who have regularly run their businesses by borrowing from banks and, you know, getting lines of credit, that that there is some expectation that banks are going to just shut those doors, even as the Fed wants them to open it up. Uh, and that that in itself could cause a recession. What do you think about that? And what well, are you advising you know, your clients? Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I had someone in the other day, we were talking, they said, look, I have, I'm under 250000 You know, that's that number for the FDIC uh, that backs your deposits. And they said, you know, what happens? I've been, you know, they've been saving money. And there's going to be a deposit going in there soon. We might exceed it. And, you know, so you don't want to be over the top with some of these things, but certainly it's, I say it would be prudent to have separate accounts, maybe separate banks. That's not a bad thing, right? If you mm. if you have a lot of cash, there's nothing wrong with that. So, you know, I just think, unfortunately, with these assets, you know, when you have loans that are outstanding, that technically is an asset of the bank. It's just like when you look with SVB, your liability is the deposits. And so, again, we want to keep in mind and maybe be conscious of how these banks work. And maybe that's a little helpful when we understand, actually, when First Citizens bought SVB, they're, they're, you probably were, their stock, market, their stock just skyrocketed because they bought these assets at a discount. Because again, yeah. if I'm buying a bank and I know they have these outstanding loans and hopefully they're pretty credit worthy loans are decent, yeah. even if some of you them hope. don't go, go bad, that's a value. I own that book. I own that money, and I'm hopefully going to have income coming in, and ultimately the loans will be repaid. So there was an asset there. They bought it at a discount. First Citizen stock went up dramatically. And so, again, there's value here in these banks. I just You have to be careful. I, hopefully the takeaway is we're more conscious, and we're kind of going to become aware of what we have going on with our deposits and banks, understand that system a little better, and feel a little more comfortable and become more engaged in our, our overall finances. Yeah, I think I think it's important to to think about when you're looking at sector investing, which is kind mm-hmm. of you know what we're on the edge of talking about. Um, you want to think very carefully because you know there will be my sense uh, only my opinion there will be some more failures to come. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't think we know where it is. I know Deutsche Bank has been on a bunch of people's lists for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, Credit Suisse was on people's lists for people who really delve into banking. And actually, there's, to go back to what I said earlier, there there's a risk for a UBS, which uh, bought Credit Suisse, because mm-hmm. if they now get lawsuits about how you know, they, they not only took on the discounted assets, they also took on whatever unfounded liabilities um, mm-hmm. will turn up. Which they may uncover so. some, I don't, yeah. 
Yeah, they they well could, and that could be a big penalty. Um, you know mm-hmm. that UBS would now be on the hook for paying. So, just as you're thinking about sectors, uh, just be cautious, careful. Make sure you're diversified, and uh, mm-hmm. you know we don't want anybody to get into any trouble here. All right, uh, 630-934-1855. Stay tuned. We'll do some more questions when we come back with This Week in Wealth on 720 WGN. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the second half of This Week in Wealth. If you are just joining us, I'm Elise Glink. I'm CEO of Best Money Moves, and I'm here with Tom Fortino, the founder and principal of the Alpha Wealth Group. If you've got questions for us, 630-934-1855. Go to alphawealthgroup.com, take a look at all the cool stuff that Tom has on his website, and he or somebody in his team will get back to you. All right, so uh, let's switch gears a little bit, Tom. Um, There is a somewhat controversial paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research, and Mm -hmm. it says it's okay for middle-income workers, okay, so that right now is people who earn somewhere between, like, say... Sixty and a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so it's okay for middle-income workers who haven't saved a lot to spend down their <clears> nest egg in the first ten years of retirement, assuming you retire in your mid-sixties, and after that they can just get by on whatever they receive from Social Security, as mm. we were just discussing. Now that okay. doesn't sound like much of a retirement plan for me. And my question to you is: Is this really the best that we can hope for? Because low and middle income workers haven't been able to save very much for retirement. So what do you think? Well, I hope not. I mean, I think that's terrible, terrible advice. Okay. I mean, to say, hey, you know, try to minimize or limit your uh, potential for income and your your safety and security in retirement. I mean, I, I, I can't. I guess I can't disagree with that more. I get it. Social Security. I mean, you can look at a lot of the studies. It, you know, a number of these things say it should be about forty to fifty percent of your income. I mean, I know in some cases it is more of your income, and that's fine. But to limit yourself to Social Security, I think, is ridiculous. It does come back to one thing here, which is you know, you're understanding where your income is going to come from. We've seen studies. I think in the first ten years of retirement, you know, that's where you spend the most because you're traveling, you're doing things. It starts to wean down a little bit, but then there's potential medical expenses as we get a little older. So, you know, this is not, you should not just limit yourself to saying, well, Social Security, I'm going to have this paycheck. Because, you know, yes, it's different than, and I always said, we have to discern between assets and income when we look at our plan. If you have a million dollars in a retirement account, that's fine. It's technically not an income, it's an asset. And there's no number out there that's going to provide the income. The, the Social Security paychecks, yes, they'll come in regardless of, you could draw down in this example, you're saying you can spend down your assets to zero. The Social Security paycheck still keeps coming in. A couple of things to consider. What happens if a spouse passes away? Well, one of those Social Security checks goes away yep. right there. And so that should be factored into the whole scenario, right? Oh, but what All about Medicare and, uh, you know, your Part A and Part B or whatever it is you're doing? I mean, all Medicare gets subtracted from Social Security. So if your typical benefit is $1,500 and you know, a month, and you get something subtracted. I know it goes down, mm-hmm. you know, for people who aren't earning that much, but even if it's $200 a month, that now that leaves you $1,200 a month to live on, which, by the way, is less than the cost of an average one-bedroom apartment in almost every state in the country. Mm-hmm. So what, do yeah. you, what, what else are you supposed to be living on? Food pantry? 
Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous to suggest this. And I think, unfortunately, I don't, I hope it doesn't, I guess, encourage people to say, well, you know, I've got my Social Security benefits. I'm all, I'm all set with that. That's just one piece, you know. So we really need to be a little more aware of, of our overall. And this kind of gets back to your plan and, and having more of an income plan. Income is, is really the important part because we say income versus savings. Income is more important because savings can run out. So, you know, that's the important part of of really looking at your plan and trying to create as much income as possible in retirement and feel like, you know, lifetime sustainable income. Right. And I, and I have to say that this idea that the market is... So in this paper, the economist who wrote it, John Chauvin, he's mm-hmm. from Stanford University, one of the author co-authors. Mm-hmm. You know, he's saying that r- real inflation-adjusted returns in the market are negative. So people are and maybe should consume at a higher level early. Just understand you're going to have a lower standard of living in the second half of retirement. And I guess, you know... Uh-huh. I, I don't know. I, I think you should be saving as much as you can. But I, you know, would rather have options. Of course. And, and I, would ra- I, I would rather even work in retirement, um, you know, to go back yeah, to... Yeah, that's an option, too, to create income. That's another source of income if you can work part-time. Hopefully, some of the time you're doing it out of choice. You know, I had right. someone ask the other day, you know, when we were talking about Ross, well, is, when it, is it too late? It's never too late to do all of these things. Mm. And so, um, you know, I just don't want this, something like this to discourage people from doing the things that, that they, they can do. And so, um, you know, it's just to do that, you know, we have all these other financial curveballs that could come along. As I just mentioned, what happens if a spouse passes away? When one of those income goes away, what happens if there's a long-term illness or there's health care costs? How are we accounting for those? Um, right. you know, just, that's why we talk about being complete. There's more to it than just no, this for one sure. aspect of it. So quick question. We got um, a question this morning from Laura. Good morning. I'm, I'm 60 years old. Can you tell me the maximum amount I can contribute to my Roth each year? I may have missed that on your show. Okay. Well, um, if you're over age 50, you can put up to – now, this year, the numbers have changed – Roth IRAs allow for $7,500 per person per year. Now, Roth 401ks, um, that, it, that the 401k contributions have increased to 30000 a year. So technically, if you're in a 401k plan, you can do 30000 to the Roth. You don't have to do all Roth, but you could. And you could do another 7500 to a Roth IRA. That's 37500 if you had the wherewithal to put in money that will grow tax-free for the rest of your life. No required distributions. And, as we talked about, doesn't tax your Social Security. Right, which is all good. Um, Those are good things. Very good things. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, question from John. Uh, please pray for those in Mississippi. We lost a second home in Fort Myers, Bra- I think he means beach, during Hurricane Ian. How, mm-hmm. how do we claim casualty or losses on our taxes with or without ide- uh, itemizing deductions? Tom, are you a CPA? Did I miss that in the list, the long list of accomplishments in your life? The short answer is no, I am not a CPA, unless that stands for something else on a certified public accountant. But um, I, you know, look, I try to, it's the old Clint Eastwood line, every man has to know his limits. And I would say, you know, I try to be cautious on some of these things where I just some ideas. I think a casualty and theft loft is a uh, below the line deduction, kind of like an IRA contribution. Um, I think it's easy to kind of look up. I don't 
I don't know if it's an, I'd have to look. It could be an itemized deduction, but if it isn't, you know, the difference between itemized deductions and standard, we get this, by the way, the standard deduction has gone up too. Yeah. For a married couple, it's 27.7 and so on. This is what you get to deduct. Itemizing is the, you know, the other way. So if you don't itemize, you don't get the charitable contributions. You don't get some of these other things, the other deductions. But, um, so. But if you lost a home and you had a $10,000, you know, you know, deductible, you may be over the limit, right? So you need to, uh, John, and for everybody else who asks these task questions, please talk to your CPA because, you know, with so much as the standard deduction now, it, it really is very few people who are able to take advantage of itemizing. I would guess it's like 90% of people, 95 even, will take the standard deduction. Less people do, yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, we have to take a quick break. We're going to come back, uh, answer some more of your questions, and uh, a little bit of a viral story coming up next on This Week in Wealth on 720 WGN. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to This Week in Wealth. I'm Elise Glink here with Tom Fortino of alphawealthgroup.com. Keep those questions coming. We love the feedback. 630-934-1855 is the number. You can leave a message there or you can text. You can also go to alphawealthgroup.com and leave Tom a message. If you've got a specific question about what's going on with your portfolio, he will be happy to get back to you or someone on his team right away. So, Tom, I recently saw this viral story online when I should have mm-hmm. been working. I was, you know, searching the internet or strolling um, about a woman in Chicago who got a bought a 1998 car. Uh, so pretty darn old, and it was a seven year lease. I guess she didn't buy it; she leased it. Uh, seven year lease for two eighty nine a month, and. You know, when you do the math on it, and, you know, I get that interest rates are rising, this 25-year-old car, which, by the way, is even older than my son Michael's car, will end up costing her almost $25,000, and probably it would only cost her a couple of thousand to buy, and, you know, you might call that a costly mistake. I kind of call that being ripped off, but still, you know, here's my general feeling, and I want to know what you think about this. My feeling is if you can avoid making dumb mistakes with your money, it is almost better than working and earning a ton. Like, trying to avoid dumb mistakes, in my mind, is better than trying to work yourself sick in order to make that much more money. So, Mm -hmm. first of all, do you agree with that? Is it better to just avoid making dumb mistakes? Well, <laughs> then, then tr- no, then I'm not asking this correctly. But do you know what I'm getting at here? It's like this idea that you, you know, if you just avoid really dumb mistakes, you don't have to spend all this time and energy earning back the money you have lost. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of saying, look, let's let's try to avoid opinion somewhat because, as they say, you know, everyone has an opinion. And try to be fact based and stick to those types of things, or seek counsel if possible. You just you know sometimes just talking through some of these things. Like you know, I have a lot of conversations where someone says, "Well, should I pay off my home?" Those conversations. When should I take Social Security? Those conversations. I mean, so a lot of these decisions are very impactful, and some of them are irrevocable, and you can't really go back and make it or reverse them. So absolutely, uh, my you know my takeaway on any of these things: if you're making these financial decisions. You know, try to be as cautious with it. If there's someone you think that you can have it as fact-based as possible, maybe seek out that person and talk it through, right? So, 
it's the same thing with in the example of a purchasing a home. I just had this conversation this week with someone. They were looking to purchase a home in Florida. Most of their money is in retirement accounts. And mm-hmm. so, well, they're saying, and they asked, and we had the conversation. And they said, you know, should I pull the money from my retirement account? And I said, well, keep in mind, any any dollar amount you pull from a traditional IRA, traditional 401k, every penny is taxable over the tax rate. is. So you just stack that on. You pull that money out today. So we had that conversation and said, yeah, I guess that's right. I'm going to take a 30% haircut when I pull that money out. I pull 100000 out. I'm going to have to turn around and give a check to the government. Roughly, you know, we say 30000 maybe a little less. But that's the point. And so does that make sense versus, okay, I put some down and then I pay it over time. And maybe you can prepay the mortgage an extra couple times, you know, which brings it down even further. You make, you know, those payments. And if there's opportunities down the road. But that's that's more sensible and you just have the conversation and so that's just one example you just have to run numbers right so the idea that you're going to buy a second home Mm -hmm. and have a six or seven or even eight percent mortgage depending on where your credit is yeah and pay that over 30 or 15 years right 15 Mm -hmm. 30 years i mean that's a lot of money now when interest rates eventually come down you'll refinance um but sure you have to run the numbers because if it if you know, if, for example, if taking the 100000 out, I get you'd have to pay, you know, your tax on it. You'll have to pay mm-hmm. that anyway when you take it out, right? Eventually, mm-hmm. you're going to take it. So, or you'll have to take it. But mm-hmm. if you then use that as a down payment, and that's your 20%, so you avoid paying PMI, another half a percent on top mm-hmm. of the 7 or 8%. Sure. Like, you start to get into some numbers that actually... It may make sense to pay the 30% up front and not pay no, that, right? Yeah, this is a perfect, I think what we're doing here, Lee, is, is a perfect example. Having just that conversation and walking through it and trying to, everybody's situ- situation is unique and it's different for everyone else, everyone. But again, this is the takeaway, I would say, as much as possible, have these conversations to determine, and like you said, run the numbers or just what your comfort level is on some of these things because the numbers may not be a big difference one way or the other. You know, again, I made the example Social Security where people say, I'm taking it as soon as I turn 62. I don't care. I'm locking into that lowest benefit. Does that make sense? And then you start talking through the fact that, hey, it grows by 8% per year. Every year you delay it. Not only that, the higher benefit not only stays for your life but goes to your spouse. You know, and then you, you start to see these things in you're making a decision, and I always say, if you can make decisions and say, I, you know, I looked at it, I analyzed it, and I made a good decision, I don't have the regret of just taking someone's opinion or making a knee-jerk reaction, because these can be very detrimental to your financial well-being. And I also want to say something. You know, We stopped a person that I knew a long time ago from making a disastrous mistake. They mm-hmm. were all set to buy a house in Destin, Florida. And I don't know if you remember this, but like 15, 18 years ago, Destin was like the destination <laughs> that that everything, you know, everybody wanted to buy at. And people were flipping houses like crazy. It was a little bit like it is right now. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to buy this condo, two or three bedrooms. I don't remember what it was. And over the last three years, the condo had doubled in price It had flipped three times, and it had doubled in price each time. So she wanted to buy this condo for a million dollars, and the year before it sold for five hundred, and the year before it had sold for two fifty. And I said to her, "Why do you think this thing is worth a million dollars 
now. Oh, I know. This was in 2006, right when everything was really nuts. I said, what makes you think that this this property is worth a million dollars today? And she goes, well, I'm going to flip it next year, and I'll flip it for like a million and a half. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, whoa. Okay, first explain why you think it's worth, you know, quadruple what somebody paid two years ago. And again, explain then why you think it'll be worth that much more next year. And Mm -hmm. she's like, oh, well, blah, 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 blah. So, of course... (laughs) By the you know we we got her I, I don't know maybe she made an offer it wasn't yeah. it wasn't accepted she was going to go back there's something that happened she didn't end up buying it well sure enough within the year all the property prices started to fall and one of the things that I wanted to point out to people now is that around the country not here in Chicago because we didn't have that run up um, but over around the country. There are places where property is falling by double-digit percentages. Mm -hmm. And in L.A., where property is zoomed up in price, uh, L.A., I don't know if it's city or county, is instituting a 5% millionaire's tax on any Mm -hmm. property worth $5 or more that's sold. And so now... There are all these stories like millionaire house on sale because they all want to either get under that five million number. They want to sell it before because all those people were expecting the double, Mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, I bought it for a million. It's worth 10 million today. Like, you know, this is just not reality for almost anybody I've ever met. Well, yeah, it's true in any type of assets that you own. You know, real estate is an asset. You own stocks. That's an asset. And it's the same thing. Where, you know, there's a tendency, you know, people have, and they've done these studies, a lot of times people buy at the wrong times, they buy when the market is roaring, and then they sell at the bottom, and again, it's emotion, so it's easy to say, and I don't mean to be insensitive, but as much as possible, you know, again, if we can try to minimize some emotions and be as objective as possible, typically we see these things, um, you know, that... There's all, there's usually an overreaction on the upside and an overreaction on the downside. And this is a pretty common theme that we see time and time again. Yeah. So you want to make sure you're not, and, you know, to go back to the whole topic of this segment, which is mistakes people make, you know, you, you really, a mistake like that where you're betting that something's going to go up because you know it's going up, right? Think crypto. And it goes the other way. I mean, you could end up losing a significant part of your retirement account, if not everything. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the best advice we can give you is to take measured risk, be careful, and have somebody really smart help you make the objective decisions about how to invest your money and make the most of it. Remember, this isn't something you do every single day, right? And yet it is something that Tom does every single day. It isn't even anything I do every single day. But there are lots of ways for you to figure out um, exactly, you know, what you need to do. Anyway, thank you for uh, listening. Tom, believe it or not, we're out of time again. God, this goes so fast. Yes. All right, I'm going to give the number one more time, 630-934-1855. You can continue uh, listening to our ramblings by reaching out to Tom this week at alphawealthgroup.com, or you just tune in next week, and we'll, you know, chat at you again, as they say, 630-934-1855 or alphawealthgroup.com. And if you're looking for me, bestmoneymoves.com. Tom, thanks so much. Well, thank you, Elise. Always uh, fun. It is always fun. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you again next week on 720 WGN. 
Tom Fortino is an investment advisor representative of Retirement Wealth Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Advisor. Alpha Wealth Group, WGN, and RWA are not affiliated. Exposure to ideas and financial vehicles discussed should not be considered investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell any financial vehicle. This information should not be considered tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult with professionals specialized in fields of tax, legal, accounting, or investments regarding the applicability of this information for their situation. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate, and when redeemed, may be worth more or less than when originally invested. Any comments regarding safe and secure investments and guaranteed income streams refer only to fixed insurance products. They do not refer in any way to securities or investment advisory products. Fixed insurance and annuity product guarantees are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing company and are not offered by retirement wealth advisors. Insurance and annuities offered through Alpha Wealth Group, licensed in Illinois. Tom Fortino and Alpha Wealth Group are not affiliated with or endorsed by the Social Security Administration or any other government agency.